Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. This episode is free of ads to thank you for your patience in waiting so long for the next episode. Let's get to it. Due to the nature of today's stories and the particular details of murders and other assaults, listener discretion is strongly advised. These stories are shorter than usual as there is not as much information on them as I would like, but these are still stories that need to be told. I hope you think so too. Usually I tell the most modern story first and then follow it up with the historical true crime. Today we are going to reverse it and tell the older cases first. I have three cases, one from 1900, one from 1926, and the last one starts his evil ways in 1978 and keeps going until 1993. Marty Bergen was one of the best catchers in professional baseball in the late 1890s. His story should be just about that. But as you know, we wouldn't be talking about it on this podcast if it were. Marty Bergen killed his whole family with an axe, and then himself in 1900. A sports writer in 1898 wrote, Martin Bergen is a kingpin of catchers, and without him, the Bostons would be probably in second place or even lower down the ladder. Bergen had an extremely strong and accurate arm. He finished his career with a two sixty-five batting average, 44 doubles, 15 triples, and 10 home runs in a total of 344 games. Hall of Famer Jesse Burkett said about Bergen, As a catcher, Martin Bergen was the best the world ever produced. No man acted with more natural grace as a ball player. There was finish in every move he made. His eye was always true and his movements so quick and accurate in throwing that the speediest base runners never took chances when Bergen was behind the bat. Martin Bergen was born on October 25, 1871 in North Brookfield, Massachusetts. His parents had immigrated to the U.S. from Ireland in 1865. His dad worked in a shoe factory and supported a wife and six children. Marty had a younger brother, William, who also later became a catcher. Marty was seven years older than Bill, and he taught him a lot. Bill caught for Cincinnati and Brooklyn from 1901 to 1911, and both Bergen brothers were considered to be among the finest catchers of their time. Polly Allnuts from Rasball.com wrote in 2012, the two greatest defense catchers during the Fens de Sicall of the late 19th to early 20th century were the Bergen brothers, Marty and Bill. Bergen was 22 in 1892 when he joined his first professional club, Salem, in the New England League. In 1893, he was playing for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Marty married Harriet Hattie Gaines on July 11, 1893. They bought a small farm named Snowball Farm and had three children, Martin, Florence, and Joseph. From 1894 to 96, he had gone through a few different teams and got a reputation for being moody. But he was a good catcher, and he went to the Boston Bean Eaters, playing for them from 1896 to 1899. He continued to have issues with his temperament, however, some players saying that he was surly and sarcastic. Boston won the pennants in 1897 and 1898 with Marty behind the plate, and they came in second in 1899. His teammates did like how well he played the game, 
but they had problems with how he behaved. Towards the end of the 1898 season, there was trouble. He had gotten into an altercation with teammates and told them he would club them all to death after the season was over. Even though there was a lot of talk about how Marty was hard to be around, he was still in demand for how he played the game of baseball. The New York Giants owner really wanted Marty to come play for them and kept trying to make a trade to get him. He was really pushing for this in 1899. His teammates wanted him to go, even though he was a huge part of them winning, because he was so difficult to get along with. Everyone thought that in 1900 he would be playing for the Giants, but sadly, he would not. It was said that he thought his teammates were plotting against him and that he saw grievances that weren't there. He started to develop hallucinations. He was dealing with mental illness that the years around 1898 and 1899 were ill-equipped to handle. One day at breakfast on the road, he just reached out and slapped a teammate for no reason. He also would sometimes walk sideways on the field, and when asked why he did this, he said it was so no one could jump him. Tragedy fell on Marty's family early in the spring of 1899. April 24, 1899, Marty's son, Martin, passed away from diphtheria. Marty was on the road with a team at the time. He went home for two weeks to be with his family. His mental health spiraled further downwards after this. Quite a few sources said that Marty had hip problems that were affecting his career and that this is what sent him into a fast spiral. However, he had an operation for an abscess on his hip in January of 1899, and he continued playing through the season end in October. He never mentioned any serious hip issues to his family doctor at the end of the season, and he was also in talks for a trade, and many sports writers had come out to his house to interview him. Marty had also started to hear voices telling him enemies were trying to poison him. During an October 8th game, Marty had been dodging pitches rather than catching them. He had to be taken out of that game. He later told his physician that he was trying to dodge assailants who were trying to stab him. He talked to his family doctor, Dr. Louis Dion, about feeling not right in the head. He told the doctor that he had strange ideas, and at the end of the season, a man approached him, congratulated him on a fine performance, and gave him a cigar. He told the doctor that he did not smoke the cigar because he was afraid it was poisoned. He also would not take any medication that Dr. Dion or his wife tried to give him, thinking it might be poisoned. He would only take medicine if he mixed it himself. Unfortunately, there was really no help for Marty back then, or if there was, however the help might have been at the time, it didn't get to Marty. There were no surviving witnesses to how things happened on Snowball Farm that cold day in January. What we do know comes from reports and examinations after the bodies were found. January 19, 1900, Marty Bergen struck his wife multiple times in the head with the blunt side of an axe, killing her. He then struck the youngest child, Joseph, on the head with the sharp side of the axe. Joseph was found on the floor near his mother. Marty's six-year-old daughter was found in the kitchen with him. It appeared that Florence was hit repeatedly on the head with the axe. Marty then slit his own throat with a razor, killing himself. Marty's father was the one to discover the bodies of the family. Some years later, after examining contemporary accounts, the Harvard Medical School's Dr. Carl Saltzman felt that Bergen was likely a schizophrenic with possible manic depression. 
In my research, there was some speculation online that this might not have been murder-suicide and that the investigators had jumped to the theory because of Marty's mental health. The speculation is that it was possible that Marty was murdered and then his family killed so there were no witnesses. One thing that pointed to this for a theory was that in a report it was noted that the razor Marty used to slit his throat was placed on a table. So the theory goes that he would not have been able to place the razor neatly on the table after doing this. However, it was only 1900 and possibly the crime scene had been contaminated before the report was made. Someone could have picked up the razor from the floor of the kitchen and placed it on the table. Nowadays, we would be able to use crime scene analysis, like what type of blood splatter was on Marty. Was there enough and in such a way to indicate that he murdered his whole family or just the blood from his own injury? Sadly, we will never know, but certainly Marty was not in his right mind, and it's sad that it had to happen at all. The medications that Marty would need for his condition were just not there then. To say this one was tragic is an understatement. George Jefferson Hassel This one is a whole different case. For his two different sprees of murders, he used five different weapons, a ball-peen hammer, straight razor, stockings, a shotgun, and an axe. George J. Hassel was born in July of 1888 and would go on to create an incredible amount of destruction in his life. His first known wife was Marie Vogel, whom he lived with in Whittier, California. They had three children. Very suddenly, the family was gone and George was living by himself in the family home. He told the neighbors that his wife left him and she took the kids to San Francisco. George left the home not too long after this. Some years later, the bodies of his family would be found underneath the home they had all lived in together. He moved to a new city and got a new job, and sometime later word got to him that his brother had died. George's brother died from an alleged mule kick to the head. Some accounts say George was witness to the accident and possibly caused the death himself. However, in the accounts of his confessions for the murders that he did, and then given the accounts of his life, he said he heard about the accident and returned home on the request of his brother's widow. He married his brother's widow, Susan, in 1924 and was then stepfather, as well as uncle, to all of the children. On the night of December 5, 1926, George Hassel was sitting with Susan and they were arguing over his inappropriate involvement with Susan's daughter, George's very own niece, Maudie, who was only 13. However, this argument went, it ended with George repeatedly striking Susan in the face with a hammer. He then strangled the rest of the children except for the eldest. He shot the oldest, Elton, 21, in the back with a shotgun. Elton had been gone when the other killings took place, and when he returned, George shot him dead. George confessed to killing Marie Vogel back in Whittier, California, and their three children, after confessing to killing Susan and her eight children. In the confession, he admitted that the murders of Susan and the children started with an argument over Maudie, his stepdaughter, and his biological niece. The Lubbock Journal referred to him as the Wholesale Slayer. The bodies were all discovered in the cellar December 24th, nearly three weeks after the murders. George had been selling all of the family's personal effects and telling everyone that they were moving to Oklahoma. People started talking about how this didn't seem quite right, and eventually there was an investigation and the bodies were discovered. After arrest, he was taken from place to place under heavy guard, 
likely due to the concern that the people would take justice into their own hands. According to a newspaper in Whittier, California, he had made the authorities a chart, and from this they found the bodies in a basement in the cottage in Whittier. They were of a grown woman and three children, a boy aged eight, a girl aged five, and a one-year-old baby. Pieces of rope had been found around their necks. In the confession, Hassel said he bludgeoned and choked his wife to death while the children were sleeping. He strangled each of the children to death after that. He did not say they were married, just that they had been living with her, and he said that he got into an argument about him going into the army as the U.S. was going into World War I. Hassel also claimed that the children were Marie's and not his, that two of them had been orphans that Marie had adopted. He admitted to being married six times and that he joined the army and the navy, had a prison sentence for desertion, and killed a total of 13 people all in the span of 20 years. He said he was first married at 18 and he had a son with this first wife. He had gone ahead for a job in Oklahoma and she stayed in Texas. They separated when his wife wrote him and told him she was done with him. He said he felt that her leaving him had ruined his life. He then joined the army, served two years for desertion, and then, according to him, wandered for years, marrying five more times. He said he only ever loved his first wife, the one that had left him. According to him, his sixth wife was his brother's widow, which eventually resulted in nine more killings in Farwell, Texas. George J. Hassel was 39 years old when he was electrocuted for the 13 deaths that he confessed to. He was asked if he wanted to make a statement before his execution, and he reportedly said, I would like to announce to the world that I am prepared to meet my God. I have made my confession to God and man. Man does not understand it all, but God does. I may be wrong up here, he said, tapping his forehead. I don't know why I killed. I simply can't say. Robert Spangler, December 30, 1978, Littleton, Colorado. Five days after Christmas, a mother and two children were found dead inside their home, all shot to death. The mother was found in the basement sitting behind a typewriter with a bullet hole to the head and a suicide note in front of her. It was typed out and signed with only her first initial, N. It appeared to be a murder-suicide in that Nancy shot her 15-year-old daughter, Susan, and her 17-year-old son, David, and then shot herself. The teenagers were each found in their bedrooms. In the typed letter, Nancy mentioned her failing marriage. Nancy's husband and the father of the two children, David, acknowledged that the marriage was having issues, but said they were working on it. He had been having an affair with a woman from work, Sharon Cooper, but that was over, he said, and he and Susan were supposed to be working on their marriage now. Both teens had single gunshot wounds to their chests. The gun found near Nancy was a thirty-eight caliber Smith & Wesson. Robert and Nancy had married young. They were a good-looking couple. Growing up, they both lived in Ames, Iowa. He had been a football star, and she was a beauty contestant in high school. David was born in 1961, and then they had Susan in 1963. Robert worked at American Waterworks, and Nancy stayed home raising the kids. During the investigation, Spangler took a polygraph test. The results were inconclusive. A gun residue test came back with Nancy having no gun residue on her. However, Robert did. He explained this away by changing his story. He said that he did come home before and found Nancy dead and had picked up the gun. 
He stepped back, shocked, dropped the gun on the floor, and left the house. Although thoroughly investigated, the case was ruled as a double murder-suicide. Robert's girlfriend, the one who had been his mistress, actually attended the funeral for his family with Robert. A very short time after the family was buried, just months after they were buried, his mistress became his wife and Sharon moved into the house with Robert. People in the neighborhood couldn't believe that Robert would want to live in that house after his children were murdered there. But even more unbelievable was that the other woman moved in so quickly. You have to wonder why this woman, Sharon Cooper, would want to move into this house, this house that the wife and children had lived in and had died in. Did she not look at the bedrooms the kids had been killed in and think of them and their horrible fate? How about the room in which his wife had allegedly shot herself? No feelings of sadness? Nothing to give her pause as to moving in? However, a few years after they were married, she seemed to have become scared of Robert. In 1986, she made a call to the sheriffs and told them that her husband was after her. She sounded very panicked, so authorities drove out there and found her hiding in a closet. They took her to a hospital. She later moved out, leaving Robert and the house alive. They got divorced, and it was ordered that Robert had to pay her alimony. Robert eventually met another woman, Donna Sunling, and they married in 1990. They moved to the town of Durango. Robert liked hiking, and he often took Donna, but she only liked the easy hiking trails, nothing too high or scary as she was afraid of heights. She was found dead on one of these trips, and Robert said he was taking her picture as she fell off the cliff to her death. It was April of 1993 when Robert took her on a special hiking trip, and he had somehow convinced her to go along a higher hiking trail. There were no witnesses to the fall. He went to the backcountry office of the park to report the accident. He waited in line to report the fall and did not try to interrupt. He waited patiently, saying nothing while people were getting permits, asking questions, etc., and waited to report that his wife had fallen off the cliff to her death. It was ruled as an accidental death. Donna Sunling Spangler was 58 years old and left behind five children and five grandchildren. Her family and friends said that Robert had her body cremated right away, and he made a very odd and tearless speech at her memorial service. Then, due to financial reasons, wife number two, Sharon Cooper, moved back into that house with him. It was said that she rented a room from Spangler. Just months later, she was found unconscious with a bottle of pills lying near her. She was still alive when he found her, and Robert took her to the hospital, but she died there. She was apparently alive long enough to say that she had taken an overdose, so Robert was in the clear. When Donna Sudling's family hears about yet another death around Robert, they contact authorities about this and try to point out how death is all around him. Littleton re-examines the case of the deaths of his family. Over the years, Robert had told different stories to different people about how his family died. Some people he told that it was a car accident. The angle of how Nancy was shot and how close it was to her played a critical role. They determined the weapon was at least six inches from her head based on the test-firing proximity and how much soot is deposited. To have a self-inflicted gunshot wound from six to eight inches away is extremely unusual. During this time, Robert Spengler was diagnosed with cancer and he had also married again. They tried an interview but got nothing out of it. They told him they wanted to talk to him again. The next morning he called and said he would come in. 
They got the FBI profiler to help them set it up to get the maximum benefit on this interview. They said things like the FBI was here to learn from him, that he was so prolific in his killings, and they knew there was a lot to know and learn from him. They made it look like there was a whole task force just for him, with boards, pitchers, etc. He finally admitted to four killings, his first wife and two children, and his third wife. He killed Nancy first in the basement, he said. He had her sign a blank piece of paper with her first initial the day before. That morning, the 30th, he told her he had a surprise for her and asked her to come sit down in the chair in the basement by the typewriter. He told her to close her eyes, and then he shot her. He then shot his daughter in the chest. Last was his son, who had woken up and was sitting up. He shot him, but he was still alive, so Robert took a pillow and smothered him the rest of the way so it would look like Nancy had done it, one shot, each child. After he admitted to the crimes, he talks about why. He told investigators that it was just easier to get rid of them, easier to kill Nancy rather than divorce her, and easier to kill the kids since the new girlfriend didn't like them. At ages 15 and 17, they would have been making their own lives just a few years later if their father had given them the chance. Robert Spangler pled guilty to killing Donna, and as part of the plea in admitting to killing his family, to have that on record was important. All these years, Nancy's family and friends did not believe she killed her children. Now it was also official and her name was cleared. That's it for today's episode. Please, all of you, stay safe. Sources used for today's episode include Martin Bergen, Society for American Baseball Research, sabr.org, written by Brian McKenna. Wikipedia for all three cases. Martin Bergen, Profile, Rasball.com, The Tragedy at Snowball Farm by Polly Allnuts. George J. Hassel, Palmer County, Texas, GenealogyTrails.com. The Case of George J. Hassel, Criminally Intrigued. This Is Us Monsters, I'm sorry, This Is Monsters.com, slash Robert Dash Spangler, slash, and Robert Spangler murdered five members of his own family, Devil Among Us Investigates, MonstersAndCritics.com. I will put the links to all of that in the show notes.